As we come now before the Word of God, if you'd like to read with me, we'll be in Genesis chapter 3 again. Uh, This is the very same text uh, that we heard last week, although from a very different angle. Uh, But we want to hear it again. So this is Genesis in chapter 3. And before we read, would you please pray with me? Uh, Lord, we know that the the seed of your word is sown upon many soils, and, and for some, the, the seed falls upon soil in which the cares of this world and the desires of other things would choke out the word and, and make those plants unfruitful, and we don't want that to be true of us. Lord, would you till up the soil of our hearts to make us a good soil that you would plant the seed of your word deep in us, that we would grow deep roots and blossom and bear much fruit. Lord, we ask that you would work this in us by way of your spirit, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Genesis in chapter 1. I want to take again this morning these first seven verses. So, excuse me, this is Genesis chapter 1, or chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is the word of God. Now, last week from this same text, we took a closer look at the serpent that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan. He's the tempter, and here his main work is to deceive, to to fool, to lie. And so we need to be aware of who this serpent is because he is still present and active in many ways. We need to see what he does in crafting these lies so that we can be on guard and stand firm. That's what we looked at last week. But the text here does not hinge upon the sin of Satan. It hinges upon the sin of Eve and of Adam. The center of the scene is in verse 6. And so today we want to take a closer look in the midst of all of God's good green earth, of all his creation, take a close look at the first human sin. 
Even more specifically, I want us to take a look at a particular sin, which I will name in a moment. But I want us to be clear what we mean by the first human sin. If we ask, what is sin? People should ask that from time to time. We use that word a lot. We should ask what it is. What is sin? The the Westminster Shorter Catechism actually asks that very question and answers it like this. Sin is any want or lack of conformity unto or transgression of God's law. (laughs) Did you get that? Short, but it's a little lofty language. Any want or lack of conformity unto or transgression of God's law. In other words, if we were to say it in different language, sin is anything that crosses or goes outside of what God says. So if God says do it and you don't, that's sin. If God says, don't do it, and you do, that's sin. And in this case, we have an instance of of Adam and Eve having done what God said not to do. God's law, his command, in fact, the only command that he has forbidden anything as of yet is to not eat the fruit of one particular tree. And yet man disobeyed. Eve saw, she took, she ate, she gave, and he took and ate. The eating of the forbidden fruit is the first human sin, but it is not the first sin ever. Animals don't sin, but spiritual beings many of whom we call angels, can. Satan, who is among the angels, sinned. He is full of sin prior to this, even. His rebellion against God has occurred earlier already, we know, as he's in the garden, from a myriad of things, selfishness, vaingloriousness, that his heart was proud because because of his beauty. And so there is sin already in the created universe before Adam and Eve bit the fruit. This is not the first sin ever. This is also not original sin. If you ever hear that term used, original sin means something different than this. Original sin is a technical theological term that doesn't refer to the first time humans sinned. Original sin is about the effect that that first sin has on all of us now. So because of Adam, every human is now born in sin. We are sinners from the origin. So we are not righteous, we are not even innocent or a blank slate. We are morally corrupted from the start. There is bad seed. Scripture puts this in many ways. Through Adam, death and and sin spread to all mankind, and, and no one is righteous. No, not one. That's true. That's true. That's why we desperately need Jesus to save us from sin, because we are so stuck in it. That's true. It's just not what we're talking about here by the first human sin. We're also, we should note, one last thing I'll note about the first human sin. This is not a solitary sin. It's not a solitary sin, by which I mean this. The eating of the fruit 
is not an isolated sin by itself. Sin usually comes in packs, like clusters of grapes on a vine, and that's the case here. The eating of the fruit is the most evident sin of the bunch of sins, in part because it's the external sin. But we know that sin isn't only external, it can be internal as well. Sin can happen just in the mind, even in the heart. Uh, Jesus talks about this a number of ways, but he mentions it in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter, Matthew chapter 5, I think it is. Let me find it. Yes. Verse 27, Jesus says, You have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus is not making light of adultery. The sin of adultery can be external. There can be a physical, relational component there. But it can also be internal sin, lust of the heart or the mind. These internal sins are still sin. They are still serious. They are still enough to give us hell to pay. But internal sins are easier to hide. Right? Internal sins give us plausible deniability. I can deny that I've sinned at all internally because nobody knows about it except for me and God. Sometimes not even me, because we often fool ourselves about our own internal sins, so I don't even think that I've sinned at all. God knows about even internal sins, but you cannot hide the bitten fruit. You could see the teeth marks. You could probably smell the tangy scent of the fruit on Adam and Eve's breath probably feel the sticky juice on their fingers still. The biting of the fruit is external sin. It is evident. It is undeniable. They ate it, and we all know it. So the biting of the fruit is the centerpiece, then, of the first human sin. It's what what opens their eyes to their nakedness and shame and causes them to now be separated from God. But the biting of the fruit is not a solitary sin. It's not the only sin here. There is a cluster of sins that culminate in the eating of the fruit. We can see some of the roots of sin that are beneath this, that they foster doubt in God, unbelief in God, pride over God, and even entertaining the idea that they could be like God. We could take a whole sermon about each one of those, but the particular sin root that I want us to look at today is the sin of coveting. To covet. So our big question is just this. What is it to covet? By the time we actually get to 
the sin, I suppose, in verse 6 of our text. At this point, the conversation has shifted, or the focus has shifted between this conversation between Eve and the serpent. That's now done. And now the focus shifts between the dynamic of not Eve and the serpent, but Eve and the tree. And we hear this in verse 6. Let me read it again. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate. Do you hear the three things in there that she saw about the tree before she ate? She saw that it was good for food, that it's edible, that it's a delight to the eyes, that it's engaging in some way, and that it's desirable for wisdom, that it was enticing to her. Of those three things that are mentioned, two of those appear in the Ten Commandments as being forbidden. The delight to the eyes or the coveting and desiring, we hear it put this way in the Deuteronomy account of the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 21. And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. So we're zeroing in here on this idea of coveting. And some theologians call this tenth and final commandment the basis of all sin. It's a big statement. That coveting is the basis of all sin. That it's the internal desire that leads to the breaking of all the other commandments. I've thought about that a lot this week. And I'm not quite sure that we can go quite that far, that it's, that it's the root of every single evil. But I can say at least this for sure. Coveting is the root of every kind of evil. It springs up in all these various evil forms. Coveting really is the dandelion of sins. It can grow anywhere, and it spreads everywhere. And, and, and except that it's different from dandelions, and that while uh, coveting seems harmless, this weed can also kill you. So if the weed of covetousness is in your heart, if you are coveting, wouldn't you want to know so that you can root it out before it grows and begins to reseed again and again and again? In order to be able to do that, we need to learn to recognize what coveting is. So, what is coveting? I'm going to try to dissect this a little bit. We want to open it up just enough so that we don't lose completely what it is. But I think it will help us to distinguish between three similar but slightly different desires. So let's look at, at three things that are connected. Jealousy, envy, and covetousness. Jealousy, envy, covetousness. 
All of these are internal desires. You can't look at them. They're not a biting of the fruit. They happen inside of us, so we don't see them directly. But these three are not the exact same desire. So how are they different? What's the difference? Jealousy of these three that I've mentioned is probably the one that we say or hear the most. In fact, I said it just this week, even while prepping the sermon, and I knew that I was using it wrong, but it popped out of my mouth. Oh, I'm so jealous of that. We hear that a lot, right? Usually when we say that, we're not using the word in the right way, at least not in the way that the Bible uses it. In scriptural terms, jealousy is this. Jealousy is about something that is mine that I don't want to share. Jealousy is something that's mine that I don't want to share. And that desire can absolutely be destructive and sinful and selfish. It usually is, but not always. Jealousy isn't always sin. There is a type of jealousy that's holy. In fact, there are times that God refers to himself as being a jealous God. By this, he means that he has something that he doesn't want to share that he is the only one worthy of worship. Worship only belongs to God. It is his, and he does not give his glory to another. That we are his people in covenant. We rightly belong to him and him alone, and he is not going to share us with any other gods. So, so a husband can, and probably even should at times, have a holy jealousy for his wife. And vice versa, a wife can have a holy jealousy for her husband. We don't want that to be controlling or manipulative. That's not holy jealousy. That's just selfishness and insecurity. But it is good not to want to share your spouse in some sense. It, it, it's good to not be okay with someone asking my wife out on a date to woo her. I would say, no thank you, back off. That's holy jealousy. Now, outside of relationships, when we say I'm jealous, what we usually mean is one of the other two. We usually mean that we're envious or covetousness. And there is no holy version of these. They are both sin. So while jealousy deals with something that is mine, that I don't want to share, envy and covetousness both deal with something that is not mine, that I want. The difference between the two is envy says, it's not mine and I want it, and I'm going to focus on the owner of the thing that I want the person who has the thing that I want. Covetousness says, it's not mine and I want it, with the focus on the object, the thing itself that I desire. So if that sounds technical, let me put it in these terms. Kit Kat bar. Pick any candy bar, I'm going to pick a Kit Kat bar. Okay? What's the difference between the three here? If I've got a Kit Kat, there's a Kit Kat bar at stake. Jealousy would be, I have this Kit Kat bar, and I don't want to share it with you. You say, break me off a piece of that Kit Kat bar, and I say, no, back off and get your own. That's jealousy, holy or not. Envy would be if you have the Kit Kat bar, and I envy you. 
I'm envious of you for having this Kit Kat bar. Covetousness is you have the Kit Kat bar, but I covet it. I don't covet you, I covet the thing. Covetousness centers on the object of the desire. The object of the thing that I don't have, but that I want. Do you hear the difference then? It's about what we desire but don't have, and this happens more often than we realize. Covetousness comes in lots of forms, bears lots of ugly children. Greed is a covetous desire with a focus on money. Lust is a covetous, covetous desire, often with a focus on sex. Vanity is a covetous desire, often with a focus on appearances. So if we ask the broad question, just what is it? What is coveting? A short definition is this. Wanting something wrongly. To covet is to want something wrongly. Now, I want us to notice this does not mean that the thing that I want is always wrong. It's the desire that's wrong. The wanting of something wrongly. So how then do we know if the desire is wrong? How do we know when we're coveting so that we can begin to be aware of it and root it out? We know that not every desire is wrong. Boy, what a life would be if that were the case. Not every desire is wrong. The commandment in the Ten Commandments specifically says, don't covet your neighbor's house, okay? But let's say I like my neighbor's house. Let's even say I really like my neighbor's house. The style is very cool. The layout is perfect. I could absolutely see my family in there. This would be great, I, and, and I want it. There's some measure of desire, and let's say it even comes up for sale, and I, I go to the bank and do all the things, and I buy it. That doesn't necessarily mean that I have coveted my neighbor's house. Maybe I did. I should take serious and consider whether I did, but maybe not. So how do we know if it's a wrong desire, a covetous desire? It's not always entirely clear. Internal desires are slippery fishes. So we need God's wisdom to discern this. So let me give us just a few red flags, or maybe a, a, that, that this might be a problem, to examine our desires. So think of these things that I'm about to give us, like warning lights on the dash of your car. If you see one, you should pay attention. If you see multiple, boy, you probably better get it into the shop soon. This is like the check coveting light to just take a closer look at the desire to see what's going on there. Four things that might be indicators that there is covetousness happening. The first is that if the desire is fixated, if there's fixation, there's a sense, often, that the desire is always there, even if I'm not thinking about it. 
that it's somewhere filed away within me. And whether that desire kind of pops up frequently, uh, like a -a whack-a-mole, or whether it only pops up kind of from time to time, and then I maybe linger on it for a bit, and then it goes away for a while, we keep finding ourselves returning to it again and again. There is some sense that we are captivated by that desire. We can be fixated on lots of things. We can be fixated on possessions, you know, someone's car, someone's gadgets, their watch, their clothes. We might be fixated on position, so focused on a job promotion or, or a certain lifestyle that we really want or are after. We could, we could also fixate on a person. It doesn't just have to be a thing. You can fixate on a person, whether that's sort of like teenage crush infatuation style things or whether it's someone that just happens to catch your eye. Fixation is often a sign that there is covetousness there. That's the first. Here's another red light symbol. If it is foremost, if the desire is foremost, that is, does it come to top of mind? Does it become the priority that finds its way to the top of my list, the driving force of my day or perhaps my life. You know, one of the saddest examples of covetousness is is those who covet love. Someone else has love, and I want that thing that they have. I want a partner, I want a spouse, I want a friend, I want maybe a different family, anyone, anyone who will love me. It's very natural to desire love, love is good, but if it becomes foremost, that's dangerous. It will consume us with covetousness and reduce the person to desperation. So there's two. Fixation, foremost, two more red light indicators. The third is this, frustration. Frustration. That is, how do I feel when I don't get what I desire? How do I feel when God, for some reason, has withheld something from me? Does it cause a particular emotional response? Does it really get under my skin? Does it make me angry or upset or just kind of seethe a a slow bubble that happens every once in a while? If there's frustration, that's a sign that it is likely a covetous desire. And the fourth and final one is the clearest warning light of them all. Is it forbidden? If it's forbidden, that is, it's not just I want what I don't have, I want what I can't have. And for Eve, this is the case, the clearest red light. Here's this fruit, this way to gain wisdom that is not hers to take. 
It belongs to God and only to God, and yet she desires something of God that he has clearly set off limits for her, for at least for now. So Eve says yes when God has said no. She coveted. She wanted something wrongly, and that desire was her downfall. Now, some people may be uh, confused or maybe even upset by this scene in the garden in general, you know? For some people, as we look at this, it seems to be making a mountain out of a molehill. I mean, we've clearly got a misplaced desire here, and there's clearly the biting of the one fruit that was forbidden, but the response of God to this is judgment. There is a sweeping curse on all the land. Adam and Eve are exiled to the garden until they die, and it's to be carried on to all their children and children and children and children and to us. And so we ask, is coveting, you know, is it really that big a deal? Let me point out if we think that. If we think that there's a mismatch between the size of the sin and the size of God's judgment, either that means there is something wrong with God. That is, his judgments are too harsh, too cruel, or too overreaching, or there is something wrong with us in that we are not seeing the depth of the evil here. If it feels small, it isn't. Our sin is always, always worse than we think it is. This is violating not only God's law, but God himself to set our own desires above the almighty maker of the heavens and the earth. That is the height of arrogance. And to try to soften that is itself sin. You know, Dorothy Sayers commented a lot about this. She was a a 20th century Christian thinker, contemporary of C.S. Lewis, a brilliant mind. And, and she said, not only do we soften covetousness, that is, that we downplay it and say it's not so bad, we actually glamorize it. We call covetousness good. We rename it by various names. We can call it enterprise. We call it industriousness or ambition that we got to climb the ladder to get to that next step. It's just good business, after all. you got to name what you want and go for it. That's what winners do. I'm going to set up my vision board with all of my wants and desires and put them right in front of my face all the time so I can go after them. Not only have we made coveting acceptable and tolerable, we see it as desirable. We are pushing ourselves further into our own desires, which is driving us further away from God. So what are we to do about this? 
I see this in my heart, which I do, I need to repent and turn from it, but, but, but how? You know, the answer in this is not kill all your desires. It's not as if there's some weeds in your garden, so I'm just going to take out the weed killer and just blanket spray the whole yard so everything is just dead. I have no aspirations, no goals, no hopes, no loves, no dreams. That's not good. That's emptiness. The Bible calls that sort of desirelessness to a person who is without desires a sluggard. A slug who's got nothing in front of them and just a trail of ooze behind them. We all need, it's good for us to want some sort of goal or desire, holy desire that we are moving toward. And I will say, if I can say this respectfully, that's true of all of us, but we especially need to have desires in front of us if we're old. I notice that sometimes for older people, it is easy to lose a sense of direction and purpose. That at the end of the day, my only desire is to just find a comfy chair. What a shame it is to live your days that way. The Bible's not degrading age here. It's not expecting older people to have the the energy, vibrancy, passions of youth. Those things aren't always good anyway. But God has given you your days. And we want to hunger and thirst for righteousness as long as we live. To keep some sort of desire before us. For all of us, the answer is not just get rid of all of our desires, it's that we need somehow to have transformed desires. That by the power of the Holy Spirit, we want God to change what we love, change what we desire, so that we want something rightly. The way that Jesus works this in us is through. Contentment. Do you hear me? The way that Jesus works that transformation of desires is through contentment. Holy desires are always contented desires. That is, that that while we, we still have wants, we still have desires, maybe even intense desires, we want those always to be laced with contentment. So we could say it this way, to covet is to want something that I do not have, but to be content is to want what I do have. Covet is to want what I don't have, to be content is to want what I do have, to be, to be satisfied with what I'm given. That if the Lord would say no to what I desire, that I would say, okay. Let's take a final look then at what God has given. How do we be satisfied with what we have? Look at what God has given here. You know, God has not been stingy at all with Adam and Eve. 
in forbidding the one tree. He has generously given them literally everything on earth for their enjoyment, for their pleasure, for their work, for their worth, for all these things. And even more than just giving them everything on earth, God has given Adam and Eve his very self. That is, the creator walks with his creatures in the cool of the day. That is, we are his people, and he is our God. And even in the midst of of sin and God's judgment, God still continues to give these people love and grace, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that we would not perish but live. The Christian who has faith in Jesus is forever forgiven and a favored child of God. We have that. It cannot be taken away from us. We have God. So we have everything. Do not go chasing after even one more crumb. If we notice covetous desire in our hearts, do not kill yourself by trying to slice and carve out your own warped desires. Nor should you try to hide it. Wipe all the fruit juice off of your chin and try to bury the desires way down deep. Instead, come before the God who has given himself to you and let the matchless grace of Jesus wash over you to transform your desires so that you can be satisfied in him. Pray with me. Lord, it's our desire that you would satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we would rejoice and be glad all of our days. Lord, when we see covetousness in our heart, in a desire that is apart from things that would be good or of you, would you transform that covetousness into contentment? That we would desire good things and be satisfied with what you see fit to give. You are a good God. Thank you for giving yourself to us. We love you and trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.